I've been watching a lot of scary movies lately. Like, some of the stuff that inspired Halloween, and then, like, also just, like, other ones that were contemporaries. And there's something about 1970s horror, where it's, like, the the harsh audio, and, like, the grain on the visuals, and, like, the, the high contrast of the lighting and everything. It just comes off scarier than more contemporary stuff. For the most part. I mean, like, that's not always true. I'm not saying, like, you can't make good horror anymore or anything. But, like, there's something about, like, that audio and visual quality that does, like, kind of enhance the creep factor to it. Oh, I definitely like that. The the feel of the older movies way more. I, I think the newer movies are way too clean. Like, if you're going to have a movie that clean, it's got to have some something really good to it. Like... Even when, if you look at, uh, like, Nope or, like, Get Out and stuff, those are, like, horror thrillers. But the way that he, like, films those movies, there's always some type of look to it that makes it, it doesn't feel as clean. And I think whatever he's doing, he is, like, kind of pulling into, like, he, he's doing something that's making it work to where you feel a little bit more fear, especially with how he filmed Night, the Nighttime and Nope. Yeah. So, anyways, I've been I've been watching all these old movies and uh, and I've been dog sitting uh, for my parents. And my parents live in a very quiet cul-de-sac with like woods right behind their house. So it's like pretty quiet, pretty isolated. I got over there a couple of nights ago at like ten or eleven, like well past dark, and several of their lights, including like their back door lights, have burned out and they just haven't replaced them. So, like, it, it was very dark taking the dog out in the backyard. And uh, I take her out, and she goes and she pees. And then she turns back to me, and I'm standing in front of, like, the door. And it's only, like, one light on in the house. And she just starts growling. And, you know, like, I'm just like, oh, fuck off, <laughs> you know? I'm about to die. I'm a- yeah. Just, like... You know, like, it had that moment where, like, the the idea, especially the ending of this movie, like, really stay with you. So, like, there is that, like, possibility, like, like I mean, like, of course it's fictional. Like, I'm not really worried about Michael Myers hanging out in, like, my house behind me. I'm worried about, like, some ne'er-do-well, like, someone, like, I don't know that's just, like, breaking in to rob the place or, like, just being a general creep or whatever (laughs) but like there is just like that moment of like if i turn around and see something i'm leaving like i'm taking the dog i'm getting back in my car and i'm going home (laughs) if you've learned anything from old movies or movies in general if the dog's growling at something random and it's dark at night there's something behind you what we consume Ahoy, ahoy, and welcome to What We Consume, a show about all the things we put into our minds and bodies. I'm your host, King Hagathor, and with me as always is... Hey, it's me, Kevin. I'm gonna have nightmares and stuff because King makes me watch scary movies, even though I love them. And then I walk outside at night, and then it gets scarier. Before we get started on this, I wanted to bring up something I forgot to mention last week. So there was this website called rentahitman.com. Now it's not it's not an actual rental service. What it was 
was uh, it was it was a URL bought by Bob Eines in two thousand five, and just to like mess around with it, he he wrote in or he made it rentahitman.com, and then he kind of forgot about it for several years and then he was checking the, the site's email inbox in 2008 and he had hundreds of messages of people trying to hire a hitman so he sent all that to the police and numerous people <laughs> went to jail for trying to solicit a hitman bro people are so stupid what the f- that's <laughs> wild just... though that's really funny that's yeah it's it's incredible i can't believe i forgot to bring that up last week but uh I figured I ought to before we get started on this. So we've been we've been covering some actual true crime for the last few weeks and discussing the difference the differences between those those that kill for intrinsic reasons or extrin extrinsic reasons. So as it's now our last episode before the holiday, I thought it finally time to talk about a movie most associated with it. A fictional killer that has intrinsic reasons. We're going to be talking about John Carpenter's Halloween from 1978. Also, King obviously really likes John Carpenter because this is kind of like the second movie that he's brought up in John Carpenter's realm in the last 27 episodes. So maybe King has some favoritism towards Mr. Carpenter. I mean, I certainly am a fan of his, but also like, what else would we do for... A Halloween episode, like as far as movies go. Uh, oh, movies! I was gonna come up with another suggestion, like a, a live video of us just carving uh, jack o' lanterns or pumpkins. You know, having a good time. That sounds boring. Oh, <laughs> movies wise, so like how I guess Halloween is like spot on, like scariness is, and it's got the name in it. Yeah, that, that's the main thing, is, like, this is the movie. Like, I mean, this movie didn't create the genre, but it, it, like, solidified multiple parts of it for decades to come. You know what it certainly didn't do? It certainly didn't want to make you decorate for Halloween, because there's not one freaking Halloween decoration in the whole movie. Well, part of the reason for that is because they uh, weren't filming around the holiday season, so they could only get three actual pumpkins for the entire uh shoot and one of them they have to smash when tommy gets tripped by the bullies so like they had to do that in one take and then they only had two other pumpkins for the entire shoot so they i mean they so they couldn't like get any decorations at all and put them up anywhere well (laughs) that might just be a cultural thing i don't think people were really putting out as much back in the 70s as they are today i don't know it was grim though it it was just it was just regular houses kids kind of trick-or-treating and then then three pumpkins like you said yeah and like trick-or-treating at like four o'clock in the afternoon because like they're walking home from school and kids are trick-or-treating like yeah no I, I don't know if that was more popular back in the day, but I feel like we never started before like five thirty six, like it, like the sun was going down. But yeah. like it is, it is bright afternoon when when those kids are yeah. going around. And it, what it, the kids that they're babysitting are in the house, not like costumed up or like wanting to go trick or treating. No, they, I don't even think they're eating their candy. So did they no, go um, trick or treating? Tommy Doyle's dressed up as like it looks like Luke Skywalker or something like off-brand equivalent, uh, and then 
I think Lindsay had like on a pretty generic witch costume, but had like taken off the hat and everything, so, so was just in. Yeah, it looked like regular clothes. I just thought or, Tommy was some uh, geeky kid that wore his pajamas to school and stuff. You know, brutal. Uh, he gets bullied play. enough, Kevin. I'm just playing. <laughs> uh, so, do you remember the first time you saw this movie? No, to be honest, because I was thinking the first time I saw it was. Uh, the ending was when she w- she's in like a car at the hospital, but that's the second one. After watching yeah. this one, yeah, I don't I don't really remember the first time I watched this movie either. Uh, I know I'd catch like minute like a few minutes here or there on TV until like junior high or high school when I finally like sat down and purposely watched it. But but like there's so many of them that like for a long time I wasn't sure like which scene like corresponded with which movie in until like i really started focusing on this one and now like i've seen this one enough times that i know like what happens in this one whereas like i couldn't tell you pretty much anything that happens in any of the rest of them except for i think i think i remember one scene from halloween resurrection or maybe that's h2o it's real hard to say yeah i like i've seen almost all of these movies and my mind like i was telling you earlier it's it's so blended together like i had a vague thing of like or a very vivid uh memory of michael myers jumping in like a river at the end of one of the movies and then he just like goes away and that's the end of the movie but i don't even know if that's michael myers like i yeah. like i've seen like because this they have what like 10 movies in this in uh, the Halloween series. And then, like, if you look at Jason or Friday the 13th, they have, like, 20 movies. So there's just so many that, like, all blend together that are slashers that I would have to watch them all again as, like, an adult and, like, take my time and watch them to fully remember them and have them, like, like, uh, like I know which movie's which. And the other thing is, like, Halloween's just one of those movies that's, like, always been there. Like, even if you haven't sat down and watched it, you know what Michael Myers looks like. You know what he does, because, like, just, like, the mask is iconic, and it's such a part of the cultural zeitgeist that, like, it's always popping up in references in cartoons, TV, uh, other horror movies, like, other works that were inspired by it. It's just, it's everywhere now. Yeah. And I don't, also, I think if this was, like... The first movie that I watched that sparked my horror, horror like interest that I would remember it. But that movie for me is Jeepers Creepers. I can tell you what I was doing that night, almost what I was wearing, how I felt during the movie, like how scared I was after it was done. Like if I slept, the thoughts that I had about the movie. But like this, like I love Halloween and I love slashers and. I kind of take Jeepers Creepers as a slasher as well, but it's like a more weirder slasher. But like, yeah. that's the movie that sparked my interest in it, so I will remember it a lot more vividly. I think when I was watching initially watching the Halloween series as a younger person or like a teenager and stuff, that I was just like going through them because I thought they were fun. So I, I like I don't have anything vivid about this movie, like at all. Like I was watching it again, I remember. Well, I can tell you two vivid things that I remember, and they both um, attribute to adolescent boy things. 
<laughs> boobies. Oh, boobies. Boobies. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Bad language, brutality, boobies, and blood. I mean, that's all you really need to have a good horror film. And, and like you can even have mediocre acting, and it's gonna be enjoyable. I, I like to see people getting killed and running for their lives and having some fear in them. You know how this movie came about is pretty fascinating. It wasn't just like some studio execs trying to cash in on on like trends or anything. How it started was a guy named Erwin Yablons. He started his Hollywood story as a truck driver, physically moving 35mm cans of film, which weigh about 50 pounds a piece, and a film is typically two cans worth, which meant that like he was physically moving like hundred hundreds of pounds at a time. And he was quickly seen as an asset during a time where Hollywood was struggling really hard. Like this would this would have been like the late fifties, early sixties, and like Hollywood was on kind of a downward slope, a lot of people believed that Hollywood was dying at that point. Well, isn't that also when they like had all the rules and started blacklisting a bunch of stuff, and they couldn't really make what they wanted? Uh, there, there was a lot of um, blowback from uh, that would have been the second Red Scare, which uh, had all the like McCarthyism and like yeah, yeah blacklisting. And, like, Senate hearings about communism and all that. I mean, if you go back and watch any of those movies, a lot of them are very lackluster films. There's only a few that, in my mind, in the 50s and 60s stand out. Yeah, and they're they're typically well-known, like Psycho. um, Yeah. uh, Which we'll come back to in just a bit. But he was seen as an asset. Like, he he was good at his job, he was a hard worker and everything, and he was able to quickly kind of make a name for himself and he was smart enough and uh made himself look good enough in front of the right people he was soon elevated from a truck driver to a booker so bookers physically book the films into theaters so it's like a logistical job they go and like talk and work out deals with like theater owners to make sure their movie gets put into the theater And he learned a lot of tricks and skills, and he continued to climb in importance until he landed a job setting up sneak peeks for Warner Brothers. So he would be in in the sneak peek with the execs, like, showing off these films. And they started asking his opinion after shows, uh, and he had a lot to say about films, enough that his wife eventually suggested that he had the knowledge and skill set, so why not just start making movies himself? So, he set to work to do just that. At the same time, John Carpenter, Nick Castle, and Tommy Wallace were all creatively flowing together, in, and they were making music together, they were uh, working on each other's short films, either like helping him write it, or helping him, or like making the music for each other. Um, so they were just like a little co- collaborative jam group. Uh, Tommy Wallace had grown up with John Carpenter in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and Nick Castle met them when they were all at USC. John Carpenter's first feature film after he graduated was Dark Star, which was a very low-budget sci-fi film that was just successful enough to get some notice. Uh, like it, it, it didn't explode in popularity, but it was enough that like people took note, like, this guy's got some skill even with a low budget. So his next project was called The Siege. It was, again, low budget, about $100,000 of his uh, friend's dad's money. And it was inspired by old Howard Hawk westerns that John loved growing up. So this is where John Carpenter met 
Deborah Hill was on the uh, set of the seed. She was the script supervisor at the time, and in post production, she assisted him or she helped him as an assistant editor. But they would continue to work together off and on until her death in 2005. I think she had some sort of aggressive cancer because she was only in her 50s at that point, which is a real bummer. Carpenter and his crew were pretty pleased with how The Siege came out, but they couldn't find any distributors. Meanwhile, Irwin was preparing to start making movies, but didn't have any movies to make. So he got a call from an agent about The Siege. They wanted the mo- uh, He watched the movie and thought it was incredible, so he worked out an agreement to distribute it. The first thing they did was change the name to Assault on Precinct 13. That's a good movie. Yeah. He so he he did this one. This is the original, not not the one in like two thousand five with uh, yeah, Ethan yeah, Hawke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I mean, that the original is still a good movie. Yeah, but he did that one. Okay, I don't think I've ever heard of this guy's like name actually. Like John Carpenter? No, the guy. I thought you said the guy who produced it. The he the, he didn't produce it. He agreed to distribute it. John Carpenter it. made it. Okay. Okay. Irwin made the trailer for it and called in a bunch of old favors with distributors to get it into theaters. And they were successful at getting it booked, but they weren't able to get a substantial audience in the U.S. But then Irwin got a call from a man in the U.K. named Michael Myers. Oh. So he wanted to enter the film in the London Film Festival. Is this, and Irwin is, is agreed. this like Michael Myers, the comedian? Like, no. So this is just another Mike Myers. Yeah, he's Canadian and would have been like a teenager at this at that point. Bro, this is that's actually wild that there's so many Mike Myers. Keep going. Okay, so Irwin agreed to let him uh, enter it into the London Film Festival, and it premiered in England. And the UK uh, crowds went wild. It won first prize in the London Film Fest. So this led to a slight resurgence in the US, and it was like generally a successful film after that but you know you can't just live off one movie forever so naturally they had to start thinking about making another film Irwin started thinking and came up with the idea of a group of teenage babysitters being terrified on one of the scariest nights of the year halloween now some people including tommy wallace claim that it was originally going to be called the babysitter murders and you'll see that a lot in on like internet trivia Irwin claims that was never a thing and it was always going to be called Halloween, but it sounds like he's just trying to, you know, uh, retcon yeah. and claim that he always had that idea. I hope there, that you're going to say that there was some, like, changes to the script and stuff, because to be honest, there was only one babysitter that was actually scared for her life the entire time. Like, the, well, the other ones didn't... Like, didn't even know what was going on. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. He tells Carpenter his idea, and they plan to meet for lunch the next day, and they discuss it, and Carpenter gets on board immediately, and they set to work. Like, Irwin, like, pitched this idea to him, and John Carpenter was like, yeah, sure, great. And Irwin says that, like, he would have made a movie about his sandwich. Like, he just wanted to make a movie, so, like... It didn't really matter if it was horror, if it was comedy, if it was action, if it was suspense. Like he didn't care. He just wanted to make a movie. I mean, if you're if and you're so, if you're like if you live and breathe movies and like wanting to do projects, especially what he's just got out of college and it's young. What this is 
seven. So when did Assault on Precinct? When did that? Uh, it's come listed out? as coming out in 1976. So and then so. he made that weird space one in 74. So yeah, he's still yeah. like he's like oh I'm building. He wants to like make movies like right. You just you want to you want your uh, creative juices to just get out there and start going. John Carpenter wasn't known for horror at the time, and Irwin didn't want to make the kind of horror movie that was popular at the time. Like nowadays, John Carpenter's pretty well known for horror because of Halloween, The Thing, Prince of Darkness, Mouth of Madness, you know, vampires. Like he's he's definitely like laid down his like his legacy in a lot of horror. Not always, but often. Yeah. Uh, but at this point he hadn't made anything that was horror and Irwin wanted to make a different kind of horror movie than what was coming out in the seventies. He didn't want to make a Texas chainsaw massacre. He didn't want to make a exorcist or, you know, like he didn't want blood and guts. What he wanted was the movie to play like an old radio play suspense and terror over blood and guts. His idea was that the horror would be in the theater of the mind like, essentially, there's nothing scarier than your own imagination. You see a dark room, and you hear a noise in it. Like, it could be anything in there. Whereas, like, you turn on the light, and it's just, like, a mouse on the shelf or whatever that, like, knocks something over. Or, or whatever. Like, it's not it's not nearly as scary, even if it's something terrifying. It's not nearly as scary once you put the light on it. So, like, he wanted to have, like, the audience kind of inventing their own horror and they're just like giving them the juice to make it so i personally think that's the best way like i love some good gore movies but like the best move the best horror movies i've ever watched it all comes down to the suspense and how like you felt through the whole movie if you know that there's just going to be like action killing going to happen like the whole time you're not sitting there on your seat and like have this anxiety in your body that you're nervous about what's going to happen who's going to live how's he going to do the killings like where where could he be at any of these times you know i personally think that's the best way yeah and uh, a lot of people would agree with you myself included like uh like blood and guts and like dismemberment and all that stuff can be very fun like it's fun to like watch those movies with friends and try to like talk like talking during it and like trying to guess what's going to happen but like if you want to be scared like this is really the way to go most of the time yeah i think that's why a lot of the people like when the first paranormal activity movie came out because there's no like monster or anything in it every like you don't ever see a physical being or anything so you're the suspense is what's going to happen like how how is this movie going to happen and play out and i think that got a lot of people and that movie helped kind of transcend some of the like the more spiritual type movies that were like really made you afraid and then some of them just went too far and they're not fun to watch but that's like one of the first movies that i like truly remember like n- not you like that's uses suspense in a different type of way and i think it worked and a lot of people remembered that movie for that yeah uh definitely that that first one um (laughs) uh i remember um like i watched it in a theater and um 
and at the end like it cuts to the credits and this one guy stood up just like screaming and he was like oh no and and like so all eyes are on him and he's just like i'm sorry i watched the bootleg version that's not how it ended (laughs) (laughs) by the way uh sorry i should have said this up top spoilers for this entire movie so you know if you're if you've gotten this far, we will be spoiling this movie from four decades ago. Four, almost four decades, way more than four, five. Almost, almost five. It'll it'll be fifty years old in six years. Well, eighty to ninety, ninety to two thousand, two thousand. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> Math's hard, everybody. So, anyways, John Carpenter agreed to make the movie. Just because, like, he wanted to make a movie, of course he was going to agree. But he had a few demands of his own. He wanted $10,000 to write, direct, and compose the music, along with, like, any other jobs that needed doing. Which is really underselling himself, kind of. Even for, like, how low this budget was. It sounds like but he, also... he just wanted full control. He's just like, I want everything. I want to control this whole movie. Exactly. He also wanted Deborah Hill to produce the movie. Uh, they had become quite close personally and professionally after Assault on Precinct 13, but she would also prove to be quite talented as a producer. So, like, Erwin was like, hey, if you think she can, sure, go for it. And his final request was probably the most daring. He wanted his name above the title of the film. He wanted John Carpenter's Halloween. Which Erwin thought, like, was pretty bold of a novice filmmaker like he's only had two very low budget movies up to this point but he decided like he liked john carpenter he liked what he'd done so far so he said he told him quote if you can make this movie for three hundred thousand dollars the way i like it you can have whatever you want that is an interesting ask of him though how many how many like great movies do you remember it being like the director's name and then the title like you don't see james cameron avatar no but you do see john carpenter's quite a bit yeah like he's like the only one hey it's he knew how to brand himself i never thought about that that's like that's very that's a like a very interesting like a signature that he specifically does i mean like uh older directors would do that like a howard hawks film or like uh uh alfred hitchcock production or you know like but uh that has kind of like faded out somewhat since then but there was a catch though Irwin didn't have three hundred thousand dollars but he knew a guy and they had a 49 to 51 percent split partnership uh, and this guy was very rich. His name was Mustafa Akkad. Like, he, he he just had a shitload of money. He wasn't willing to give it out willy-nilly, but he could be persuaded. So he was hesitant at first, but Erwin was able to work his magic, because Mustafa was like, oh, I don't know, I mean, like, $300,000 is a lot of money. And Erwin was like, well, I mean, like, if you don't have $300,000, like, I guess we just won't make the movie. And he was like, whoa, 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 I have $300,000. So, like, he worked his pride and was able to get him on board. 
Still, $300,000, even at the time, was relatively low budget. Like, The Deer Hunter cost $15 million, Jaws 2 cost $20 million, Superman the Movie cost $55 million. Even other low-budget horror movies like Black Christmas, uh, which would greatly inspire this movie, was $620,000. And although the Texas Chainsaw Massacre cost somewhere between $80,000 and $140,000, they had a lot of problems on set, so like that, uh, their financial problems along with other problems on set were why it had such a low budget. Like they had a lot of people actually get hurt on set, and practical effects. It's risky going that low, huh? Practical effects. Yeah, you gotta really uh, cut off an arm. Cut off an arm. They almost did. <laughs> Carpenter believed he was up to it, and he and Deborah Hill got to work on the script. Deborah Hill wrote like a majority of the draft she shaped the girls personalities which i think she did a great job on because they come off as pretty realistic teenagers whereas uh carpenter focused on the mythology and the behavior of michael myers he uh he wanted michael myers to be a force of nature something beyond a man but absolute evil like a mythic elusive boogeyman modeled off uh yeah so like he he wanted this to be like not a man, but like a force, like an unstoppable force. Well, I think he did. He did just that because yeah. he transcended for sure. So together they worked on making Michael Myers. Although in, in the um, in the script, he's mostly just known as the Shape. But they named they named it Michael Myers after the man who entered assault on precinct into the London Film Festival. Mm-hmm. There was a little bit of like unhappiness that like they didn't get like any royalties for the name or anything but i mean it's just a name like i like I the think person they were... wanted royalties from the from them using the name yeah he and his wife were a little bit i i, I wouldn't say went as far as upset but they were just kind of a little grumbly about it they could have used any name and it would have been fine and the name wouldn't it did what, yeah, uh, I, I don't know how serious that was. It was just like an anecdote that one of the cast mentioned later on. I think it was Irwin who mentioned it, but I, I don't think it was all that serious. So their first casting was uh, Dr. Sam Loomis. Carpenter wanted Christopher Lee, but he turned him down. Irwin had seen Donald Pleasance uh, in a movie called... Uh, uh, it, it was a western from 1968 i forgot to write it down uh, but it starred charlton heston and then donald pleasance played the antagonist and so like he thought that would give like gravitas to the film donald pleasance is also known for the great escape and he played blofeld in uh, you only live twice the james bond movie okay like you know the titular bad guy carpenter agreed and the deal was struck so they got donald pleasance on board next they moved on to casting lori and Carpenter had his eyes set on a young actress who had only been in minor roles in TV shows like Columbo and Operation Petticoat, and her name was Jamie Lee Curtis. Despite being the daughter of Tony Curtis from Spartacus and Jamie Lee from Psycho, this would be her first feature film. It's also no coincidence that Donald Pleasant's character was named Sam Loomis, because that's the male lead in Psycho. Well, like the, the male protagonist for the second half of the movie. But what is a coincidence is who they chose to play Annie Brackett. Nancy Key's stage name at the time was Nancy Loomis. She uh, played a secretary in Assault on Precinct 13, meaning they were all familiar with her work, and she was an easy hire. So, like, they named the doctor after the character from Psycho. 
They get the daughter of the character from Psycho. They get a, another girl who's, like, coincidentally named the same last name as the guy from Psycho. It's just, it's very interesting how many, like, connections there are in this film. When I was looking at the cast list, I was like, yeah, that's weird that her name's Loomis and his name's Loomis. But it's like, one's not a real person, one is. But so was... I don't know. Yeah, so I don't I don't know if her stage name was also inspired by Psycho. I wouldn't doubt it, but I don't know for sure. But that was her stage name, and then they also happened to draw from Psycho yeah. for multiple reasons. So then they also got PJ Souls, who uh, was seen as a good pick after her performance in Carrie from 1976. So they had their trio of girls, and then the connections don't just stop there. So Nancy was also married to Tommy Lee Wallace who was John Carpenter's jam buddy. Yeah. And uh, Tommy Lee Wallace was also pretty into filmmaking as well. And so they were a package deal. Tommy would be the production designer and one of the editors, while Nancy played Annie and assisted the art department with the costumes. Nancy also knew Louise uh, Jaffe, who became the script supervisor, and Erica Euland, who was Louise's roommate, and she was also a makeup artist. So... Like, bam, we're just filling out the cast with friends and family. Well, it (laughs) it shows that if you know people, then it's easier to get a job. It's all about how you know. Uh, Like, uh, the best boy Steve Mathis had worked with Dean uh, Kundi, who, you know, is now making his third appearance on this podcast because he was the cinematographer for The Thing, Jurassic Park, and now Halloween. So they knew each other, and Steve Mathis had a brother-in-law named Krishna Ra- uh, Rao, I think it's Rao, who had been taught how to be a camera assistant by Dean Kundi and would be second assistant camera on Halloween. Just all, all of your favorite movies, all your favorite cin- movies are connected, King. Yeah. Everything. And so, and so is every member of the cast, of this, or the crew of this movie. Hey, you save on money that way. They're not expecting as much out of family. Correct. Uh, needless to say, this was a very intimate film crew. They were also very young, very hungry, and like you said, very cheap. So this cut down production, um, it, like, it was also their first real feature film for most of them. So they were ready to do whatever it took. So they were loyal and cheap. You know, like, what more could you ask for on a low-budget movie? And it's a good thing, because... 70,000 of their 300,000 was going to the cameras, particularly the Panavision Panaglide, which is a brand of Steadicam rig, and it was only like the second movie ever to use a Steadicam. Are you familiar with that, uh, with the Steadicam? I think I know what you're talking about, but you can explain. So basically, uh, you get strapped to the camera, like with a belt around your waist, uh, and then it's got like counterweight or a gyroscope in it, which means like it's a lot smoother than just traditional handheld, but it also gives you a lot more freedom than say like dolly tracks or like a crane. Yeah. So with how claustrophobic some of these interior shots are, this allowed them to, you know, go upstairs or go through doors without, you know, having to like try to match shots together. It's like the, I guess where you hold the gimbal and stuff now with like the new cameras. Well, there, there are still Steadicam rigs. Like, that's still a technology they use. They're much more refined now, and yeah. some of them are really, really cool. 
I've never had one, but I have used them in classes before. It's it's a trip. Like you can just like dance around, and it'll stay like pretty steady for being very delicate equipment. There was one drawback to this because the sacrifices that the cameras could only hold, I think, four minutes and twenty six seconds of film. So you really had to like get your shots precise. Like you you couldn't like start rolling and then like fuck around and then like have the slate and then like just sit there for a second like you had to like cameras rolling slate go yeah that is cool four minutes is nothing in a movie so like that's that's the absolute max so we'll get into this a little bit later about like how this kind of made them improvise later on uh but the but these shots gave the audience a much more personal experience like they could walk with Lori down the road or they could become the eyes of Michael Myers and like his point of view, which yeah. gave like the audience a very intimate experience of the killer, like of a voyeur. This gave them a, a lot of pretty unexplored territory to work with. So while that was happening, Tommy Lee Wallace was assigned to find a mask for the killer. So the script just called for a blank face. Most people probably already know this detail, but for those that don't, he went looking and found a shop on Hollywood Boulevard that had all kinds of masks, from like Richard Nixon to Spock from Star Trek, but they were all too distinct to be useful. Like, if if you were walking around in a Richard Nixon mask, everyone would know you're wearing a Richard Nixon mask. They didn't want that. They wanted more anonymity. He ended up picking up an Emmett Kelly sad clown mask and not feeling too help- hopeful, but next to the Spock mask was a pretty poorly made Captain Kirk. Like, the Spock looked like Spock, but that's the picture I sent you. It's yeah. the before versus the after. Like, that's a pretty abysmal Captain Kirk, but it is just like a blank face. Yeah, it's basically nothing. Yeah. It could be anybody. So... So he decided to grab both of them and give them a shot. Uh, he opened up the eye holes to make them gaping black holes. And then uh, he shaved off the eyebrows. He shaved off the sideburns. And then he darkened the hair and painted the face appliance white. And so he tried the clown mask first, which he gave like a pretty similar treatment to. And everyone was like, okay, that's that's eerie. It's strange. But it wasn't the mask. And then he unveiled the Captain Kirk mask, or what would become the Shapes mask. No emotion, no personality, just pure evil. Like, people gasped when he brought this out for the first time. Like, they, this was legitimately terrifying. I mean, like, we all know it today, so, like, it's kind of lost its effect. But, like, the first time you see this mask, it is a pretty frightening, just, like, absolutely blank face. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, even when you see it, like, in in anything, you still kind of get that feeling of pure fear because that's what the movies and everything have, like, ingrained into us. Yeah. Uh, so, Nick Castle, the other, the other leg of their trio of jam partners, he would play the, the masked shape, not the unmasked shape, which would be played by Tony Moran. But he was on set and wasn't really doing anything, so, like, they they liked his size and his build, so they were just like, just throw on the costume, be our, be the shape for us. 
And he was like, all right, uh, what's my motivation? Like, he asked Carpenter that, and Carpenter was like, your motivation is to walk from A to B. (laughs) (laughs) Which, which, like, is not great when you're trying to be a thespian. Like, you want, like, an actual motivation. So he wasn't super convinced, but he did as he was told. And, uh, And then he saw the dailies, and he saw Carpenter's vision. Like, he suddenly saw, like, oh, shit, like, this is something. I mean, like, there, there's... Uh, the lack of emotion is almost an emotion itself. Like, it gives character to the shape. And so they, they started filming. Uh, first day of filming, Jamie Lee Curtis struggled, uh, thinking, like, she had performed terribly. So when John Carpenter called her that evening, she expected to be fired uh, and replaced. Like, she, she just, like, was super down about her performance, and she thought for sure, like, she's getting fired especially when he called her. But the reason he called her was only to say that he thought the day went really well and he was really happy with her performance. Something that she says she's never gotten from any director since then. Like, this was, like, the only time she's ever gotten that. Wow. So, like, especially for it being her first movie, like, that that really worked on her. Like, this reassurance gave her confidence for the rest of the shoot. And the rest of the crew remarked later that, like, she was always very polite and helpful on set. She volunteered to carry equipment and move set decor whenever she was free, like, just however she could help. So the final shoot of the film was the murder of Judith Myers. So, like, the very first shot in the movie was the very last one to be filmed. Because they had to, like, they had the dilapidated house for the Myers house in 1978. And then for this final shoot, they just painted, like, the walls that they were going to be going through and, like, cleaned things up. But otherwise, like, it had started dilapidated, so they only cleaned exactly what the uh, film would see. And this is where the Panaglide really shined. He does, he does uh, that with a few of his movies. Carpenter, yeah. Yeah, because, yeah, like, in The Thing, he filmed everything in... Um, in the base and then like blew it up and then had them use it as the Norwegian base. Yeah. Yeah. I guess he's like, uh, that's a great way to save money. Yeah. So this is where the Panaglide really shined, but because of the camera's limited film budget, they couldn't get the entire scene in one roll of film, meaning they actually had to cut it multiple times. So like the first time he puts on the mask and like, I think when he, uh, when he, like, turns around to get out of the room after stabbing his sister, like, and then I think one more time somewhere in there, like, there's three or four cuts throughout that scene, but they're they're just spliced together well enough that, like, the audience's eyes don't typically pick it up unless they're looking for it. And, and while they were doing this, like, because of, like, the pathway of the camera, crew had to, like, move furniture and lights in and out of, like... Uh, certain rooms just to like have the proper lighting but also not like see the lights just like set up in the corner or they'd have to like jump out of windows or or like dangle off balconies just so that like they wouldn't be seen after like they had to be somewhere to like move something or whatnot and that ended up shooting for over 16 hours like they had they ran through multiple camera people because like uh, walking around with like any kind of steady cam can be pretty exhausting with how I would assume heavy and bulky the Panaglide was just because of the newness of the technology. Like 
they wore out their first camera operator, then they wore out Dean Kundi, then they like finally got on a third guy and like can like almost wore him out, and finally John Carpenter was satisfied and called it a wrap. But, and everyone else felt pretty satisfied with their work, but like it was a very long final push to the end. But I think it was. There's no <laughs> doubt that that shot, that whole scene, everything about the start of the movie was worth it. Because I think if he doesn't start off the movie with that type of president, then you kind of like that. That helps you build the suspense so much. Like he didn't for the for the next what? It's like the next fifty minutes. Because uh, that's the, the that's the first seven minutes. Then the next like fifty three minutes, there's nothing else happens in the movie. No killing. No anything. So he's just building that suspense. He starts you with like. What did we just see? And then you're thinking in your mind, what's going to happen? Is this going to be like crazy? Like, and then that, like them taking that time and like putting putting uh, the face on the camera and you walking through it. Then you're seeing that it's a little boy, and then that them taking their time with that. I, I think it really set the tone for the rest of the film. It, it seems like it really paid off, like just based on what you see in the final product. And then it came to the editing. Tommy Wallace, uh, who had been kind of an everyman for the entire production, like, he was the production designer, but, like, he was also, like, he was Michael Myers when he smashed through the closet door. He was, uh, he, during that scene of Judith Myers' murder, he had to flick paint on her um, in between, like, the the shot of her clean and then, like, the cut back to her being covered in blood. So, like, he, he was just everywhere on this and then like he also happens to be the main editor of the film he was assisted by charles bornstein they did the best they uh could to cut the film down to size and stretch out certain moments they said like a rubber band of tension until it finally snapped because like this this movie's got a lot of scenes where it just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and then finally the action yeah i mean every scene with laurie until an hour and what 11 11, uh, 13 minutes in or something something like that like it's just building like everything about it is building the suspense even when she's just like hanging out with the kids there's always something going on to be like we know that there's something going on but she doesn't so it's building and then in the editing room they had an idea instead of the ending just being from Loomis's point of view looking out on you know, the empty neighborhood. They wanted a montage of the entire neighborhood from shots that you'd already seen to kind of imply that Michael could be anywhere. And they wanted, like, the audience to leave the theater with the idea that, like, behind every bush, behind every building, behind every car, behind every street light, there could be the boogeyman, you know? Yeah, he's um, standing behind you right now, King, in your closet. Yeah. And, and like, that feeling works because, like, when I was, you know, standing outside with that dog, like, there was that, like, you know, hair-raising idea that there could just be someone moving around behind me that I wouldn't know. The problem was they hadn't planned that during shooting, so they hadn't filmed shots like that. Like, they hadn't dedicated, they didn't have dedicated shots like that. So what they did was they went through their scraps and 
like between when the camera starts rolling and the slate, they have just like a couple of seconds of establishing just to make sure that like the lighting isn't good and everything looks correct. Like, and there's nothing on the screen that shouldn't be or anything. And then the slate comes in and then the slate goes out and then, you know, the scene starts. Yeah. So they went through their scraps and just pieced together like frame by frame, different shots you had already seen, like the couch, the hallway, the uh, staircase, the neighborhood, the other house in the distance. Like, and so they just pieced it together and gotta say like, that's one of their best moves. Like, like this film just works. Yeah, I think I think because he had a vision and what it was going to be, and like he he kind of they kind of stuck with that vision and the way that the film he wanted to build the film, and everybody was just like there and intimate together that they could use things like that and just like make it work so well that every there there wasn't any thing that they were doing that was waste like everything could have had a purpose and i think because they were also passionate and kind of saw that vision they saw that those pieces and everything about it had had worth and they capitalized on that and as far as i know this movie stayed in budget and on schedule too because it was only like a 20-day shooting schedule which is very brief most of the that's, time that's a, that is very quick overturn on like like any movie ever like even yeah. low budget student films sometimes take longer yeah uh, essentially like five days a week as many hours as it takes get you know get the shot i figured we should go over like the actual plot points of this movie uh, i i don't want to run too long but um like i i think it's worth talking about so just I'm going to go through them, stop me if you have something to say, or I'm going to stop myself at certain points, so just... So, we start off Halloween night, Haddonfield, Illinois, 1963. Six-year-old Michael Myers is supposed to be babysat by his teenage sister, Judith Myers. She is supposed to be taking him trick-or-treating, but instead she's preoccupied with her boyfriend, Danny Hodges. They go upstairs to have sex while Michael leers at them before entering the house, grabbing a kitchen knife and a clown mask. He waits until Danny leaves, which is one minute, 21 seconds after they go upstairs. So, like, they went upstairs, got naked, had sex, and a minute and 21 seconds passed before you see Danny on the stairs putting his shirt back on and leaving the house. That is probably the most accurate depiction of teenage sex ever. Well, I mean, like, yes, but also, like, that's still so ridiculously short. Like, like, and they, they, like both seem to be happy with it which is also kind of accurate for teenage sex it's just like wow whole 10 seconds man you're amazing (laughs) hey hey it's very accurate it happens uh so michael goes upstairs stabs his naked sister to death and leaves the house to be confronted by his parents i like like i said i mostly caught this film on tv until, like, I finally, like, rented it and sat down to watch it sometime in junior high or high school. But, like, the TV version obviously does not have boobs. <laughs> like, the the way that this version does. So, like, watching it the first time, like, as a teenager, it was just like, whoa! 
Yeah, yeah the, the boob part really sucked you in because then you're like, now I got to watch the rest of the movie. I literally yeah. would like when I was a teenager, I would watch or I guess a preteen, like in between like ten and fourteen, I guess. I would watch uh, the Jason X movie just for the end part to where they're all where there's just a bunch of boobies. Yeah, of course. (laughs) And like, they got a very well endowed actress to play Judith Myers too. So, yeah, I I wonder Uh, that. Like, is this the movie that kind of started off the like boobies at the beginning of horror movies? Yeah, we'll we'll get into that when we get to the legacy. Um, I it's not the first movie that features nudity as far as like like in this context as far as i can tell but like this movie set a lot of like it it cemented a lot of horror tropes going forward like the virginal last girl the slutty friends dying first boobies blood bad language (laughs) (laughs) so this movie was defining in that aspect and like how the killer keeps coming back after seemingly dying. Um, and we'll get to that in a bit, but, um, but yeah, so he stabs Judith Myers and runs out of the house is confronted by his parents. And it's revealed that like Michael Myers is in fact, like a six year old boy who looks relatively innocent and traumatized by what he had just done, but he did just do it. Yeah. I was watching this with my wife and she was like, there's no way I would have let a child kill me. She's like, he could have stabbed me a couple of times, but I would have knocked him down. Like I would have like, there, I mean, for us, it is such an, like comically massive knife too. Yeah. Like I mean, it it might just be because he's like six years old, but that thing looks like it's like a foot and a half long in his hand. I don't, I don't know how many people would get killed by a six year old, especially like you like uh, you know from the back maybe, but like she was like looking at him, like all, all she had to do was kind of kick him because she's a, a an adult and like keep him away, even with the like long knife. Like you're not gonna get killed. Yeah, but you're not going to expect your six-year-old brother to actually stab hey, you. Once he stabs like, me the first time, it's free game. He's 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 dying. Yeah, but if that first hit's enough, like you're not going to get a fighting chance before the second well, one. Well, it like, sounded like in our last episode, the first hit was enough to the head with a hammer, and uh, she still kept going. Yeah, well, she's not Susan Kuhnhausen. <laughs> so... Michael spends the next 15 years in Smith's Grove Mental Institution where he waits dormant. On a dark and stormy night, October 30th, 1978, Michael Myers enacts his escape plan with, uh, while his doctor, Sam Loomis, and a nurse prepare to transfer him for what Loomis hopes will be the final time. During the chaos of a security breach that allows all the patients to escape and wander, Michael steals Loomis's car. Loomis knows he's headed for Haddonfield, but fails to gain any meaningful assistance from police or government or the hospital, and so he has to travel alone. So the next day, Halloween, Michael kills a mechanic stealing what would become his iconic jumpsuit or boiler suit, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Laurie Strode, completely unaware of the looming threat, drops drops off the keys at the Myers house, accidentally setting off Michael's obsession. So he stalks her for the rest of the day as she interacts with Tommy Doyle, who she'll be babysitting that night, as well as with her friends Annie Brackett and Linda Vanderclock. Michael also briefly stalks Tommy Doyle as well, uh, seeing him bullied by other kids, trying to frighten him with stories of the boogeyman. Michael is so obvious during 
like this time like he just is the most like obvious thing in the world and nobody but Laurie picks it up at all yeah but i think that's how kind of like the real world is too like you're not like you, you can be being stalked by somebody and if you don't like know that they're, they're stalking you or anything you're not gonna be just be like oh there's somebody like watching like it's just you hiding in plain sight you know people do it all the time yeah but but also he he's a large man in like a very bizarre halloween costume if that's what you want to go with like just wandering around but it's, it's halloween i guess and like i said those trick-or-treaters are out at like 4 p.m like bright sunny day uh which is kind of weird but regardless loomis arrives in haddonfield and discovers michael has taken judith meyer's tombstone which must have been heavy but uh Michael Myers has an unspecified amount of strength. Like, he's able to just do that. Yeah, and I wonder if Uh, they meant... I wonder if he, like, intentionally did things like that to build that Michael Myers is, like, super strong. Or if those were just, like, weird things that, that, like, Carpenter and them, like, thought were cool and should put into it. Or if they knew that they were building his, like, supernatural strength that nobody when the world actually has well i think i think it was uh more to just like continue implying that he is like an unstoppable force like if he puts something in his mind he's going to enact it even if it means lifting something a man shouldn't be able to lift but it also doesn't show how he did it so like he could have gotten like a truck and a winch i mean obviously he didn't but he could (laughs) have I just picture him picking it up and walking walking away with it, honestly. I'm pretty sure that's what happened, yeah. <laughs> uh, So Lori and Annie go for a drive and smoke a joint when they run into Annie's dad, Sheriff Brackett, who does not smell it somehow. Although it was like 70s weed, so it was probably like pretty tame by comparison. So like the smell might not have been as prevalent, but... It does seem like kind of a plot hole that like the sheriff's just like, oh, I don't smell a thing. I've got COVID. <laughs> it's also his daughter, and he, you know, he probably is letting her get away with things. He's the sheriff. Yeah, he was also distracted by quote unquote kids running around causing mayhem because it's Halloween. But in any case, he tells him about a break in at the hardware store, which is where Michael gets his knife and his mask, and uh, and some rope. Loomis meets with Sheriff Brackett to discuss the danger, which cause without causing a townwide panic. They go to the Myers house to find it empty, except for a dead dog that Michael killed and probably ate. Just an interesting detail. Like, it's entirely off screen, so you just have to listen to the dialogue. But, like, Sheriff's like, it's a dead dog. And, uh, <laughs> Loomis is just like, he got hungry. What? And then... And and then Sheriff says that, like, it could have been a skunk. Does he mean that, like, it could be a dead skunk? Or does he mean that, like, a skunk ate a dog? I was taking it as a skunk ate a dog or, like, killed it. Which is very silly. Skunks are not the most impressive critters when it comes to, like, killing things. Maybe it's like the dog died and the skunk was eating on it. I don't know. But he also said that the body was still warm, so it was recent. It was kind of, I feel like it was kind of building that the sheriff, like, maybe not incompetent, but he wasn't taking things seriously, and if he would have, maybe people wouldn't have died. Yeah, maybe. Um, So Loomis decides to stake out the house and scare off anyone foolish enough to get close. 
And there's just that shot of him after he scares off those kids. He looks so pleased with himself. Dude, he was. He was so happy. I would be too, though. Yeah. I think that would be funny. And you're and in the back of your mind, you're like, you know, if Michael's in there, he just saved their lives. Yeah, true. Uh, so Lori and Annie split up to go to their respective babysitting jobs across the street from each other. Annie is babysitting Lindsay Wallace, and Lori is babysitting Tommy Doyle. Michael stalks Annie, who's making plans to meet her boyfriend, Paul. He harasses her by smashing plants. He kills their German shepherd. Annie thinks the dog just found a female dog to go hump for some reason. Like, that's that's not the sound a dog makes when it... in Unless it's in pain. Yeah, but, but she's, she's a dumb teenager. Yeah. Or she's projecting what she wants to happen to her. Yeah. Uh, in any case, Annie get, uh, takes Lindsay to the Doyle house to make Lori watch both kids while she goes to pick up Paul. I, I thought this detail was uh, really cool. She goes to the car and finds it locked, so she's like, oh shit, I gotta go get my keys. And she leaves. When she comes back, she doesn't unlock the car, she just opens it, and it's open now because Michael's already inside it. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, I, I only noticed it because I watched it again a couple days ago. She didn't put that together. Right. Yeah, no, she was just starting to see that something was up when the like windows were fogged yeah. over, but by that point it's too late. Mike was in there heavy breathing. Yeah, and uh, he he starts choking her. He chokes her for a full 30 seconds of screen time, which is long. Like, it's long, it's a single shot. It's, or it's not a single shot, but it's it's like... There's no cutaways to anything else. It's just him choking her for 30 full seconds before he slices her throat or her carotid artery. But, like, it's it's a very uncomfortably long death scene. Yeah. It's also the hon- horn is honking and stuff. I do like in uh-huh. this movie that, like, all the neighbors are like, well, we're just going to mind our own business about everything. People can do what they want. We're going to mind our business. Not call the cops or anything. Yeah, it, it's interesting in that way. Like nobody's nobody's willing to like even take a peek besides yeah. the main characters. The curtains don't even the curtains don't even open <laughs> most of the time. Yeah. So Tommy sees Michael outside the Wallace house several times, but he disappears before Laurie can see him, causing Laurie to not believe Tommy, which is kind of annoying because like she's been followed around by this boogeyman all day. But now that Tommy's seeing him, she's just like, there's nothing out there. Mm-hmm. Come on, Lori. Linda and her boyfriend Paul, or boyfriend Bob show up and finding that Annie and Lindsay are not there. They call Lori, assuming that, assume that Annie is just off with Paul and proceed to go upstairs to have sex. Again, very mediocre, very short sex scene. Like Normal. nobody in this, nobody in this movie can fuck. Bob goes downstairs to get them beer. He's attacked by Michael, who's strong enough to lift him off the ground by his throat before eventually stabbing him so hard he sticks to the wall. And he pauses and tilts his head, apparently admiring his work, which I think is a really good, like, character detail. Like, Michael, like, has a personality in this movie. It's just very subtle. Yeah. Also, he stabs him, like, a lot lower than I would have expected. Like, you'd think, like, he'd have to stab him, like, up in, like, the heart to, like, get him to stick to the wall without, like, slumping forward. But he stabs him, like, underneath the rib cage and is able to make him stick, like, straight up, which... I've never stabbed somebody to the wall, so I don't know. That's fair. 
Then Michael drapes himself in a sheet like an old-fashioned ghost and puts Bob's sunglasses or his glasses on to fool Linda. Again, just why did he do this? Because he thought it'd be fun for himself. Like yeah. he's entertaining himself. <laughs> like he's that part was he's a psycho really killer, that, but yeah, that part was. So but he's funny. got jokes. It was. It was. Yeah. That was great. I was just like, what is going on? Like, yeah. it, it, it wasn't just that he had the sheet on. It was the glasses that really set It was the glasses off. over yeah. the sheet. Yeah, absolutely. So she's amused at first, but his lack of response to her teasing and flirting makes her give up and call Lori. And when she does, he strangles her with the phone cord, just as uh, Lori picked up to make, which makes her think it's Annie and Paul, like, calling while having sex just to, like, rub it in. Again, it's, like, another 30 seconds of screen time. So, like, it's a long choke scene, but, like, this one's, like, it's creepy, but at the same time kind of humorous, so, like, it makes it almost even more uncomfortable, yeah. because, because like, Lori takes quite a long time to catch on, which is understandable. Like, you don't think you're gonna be hearing a friend getting murdered, but, yeah, it's just another long, drawn-out uh, d- death scene. Lori finally starts to, you know, get concerned, so she decides to go investigate the Wallace house herself. She doesn't find anything suspicious downstairs and heads upstairs. Meanwhile, Loomis gave up on the Myers house. Speaking about all these houses and every house that everybody walks into in this movie, why does no, does nobody know how to use lights? Not one light (laughs) switch is ever turned on, but besides Michael Myers, like turning it on and then turning it off after he kills the girl. Yeah. When Lori uh, looks across to the house, they just don't under like nobody uses lights. Yeah, I I don't know. Um, the first thing I, I would have done if I, when I was Lori to go check on them, I would have walked in and be like, "Where's the lights? Where's the?" Well, I, I think it's implied that um, at the Doyle house, he kills the lights and the uh, phone. Uh, the phone, but I'm not positive. But that's just like in general, like even when Bob and um. Uh, Linda went in there. They didn't turn on any lights. That's weird. Yeah, yeah, it it is. I I think that's just kind of you know a bit of a plot hole that we're just gonna have to move on from. Uh, but but it is a good point. So at the same time that she's checking downstairs, Loomis gave up on the Myers house and began to roam the neighborhoods because he found the car. So like he knows he's getting close. Lori goes upstairs where she finds Annie dead on the bed with Judith Myers' tombstone. Again, like, just Michael, like, <laughs> entertaining himself. <laughs> so he, uh, he had to be carrying that thing around. You know how close yeah. he, he He didn't run back to the Myers' house to get that. He, no, he definitely not. He it around. Uh, shocked, she stumbles into the bodies of both Bob and Linda as well. And I guess that's why he got the rope at the hardware store, is just to hang Bob, like, (laughs) for a jump scare. (laughs) Like, Michael's such a fucking, like, just, like, having the time of his life throughout this. So shocked, uh, yeah, so, uh, she backs into a corner next to a darkened room, which is one of the best shots in the movie is like where she's in the light and then there's just this dark room next to her and they slowly dimmed up the lights so his face would just appear like he doesn't have to like walk into frame or anything he's just standing there the whole time and they dim up the lights and it just reveals that white face on the black and then he takes the worst swing in the world at her i mean i guess you could argue that like he was just like trying to play with his food sort of 
but like that slash on her arm is like the worst shot he could have done. But I'd say it's almost completely redeemed by that fall down the stairs because god damn that would be brutal. Like on just wooden stairs, yeah. like no carpet or anything from all the way up there, that would be rough. So Lori f- flees to a neighbor that like looks at her out the window and then closes the curtain and is just like, no, thank you. Like, she uh, no, like, she runs back. At least like called the police or did something. Like, they could have done anything and chose not to. Then Lori, Lori runs back to the Doyle house, but I guess like when she fell down the stairs, she lost the keys or like when she tripped on the grass. At some point, she lost the keys, begs Tommy for help, doesn't ring the doorbell for some reason, which weird move. But anyways, he lets her in just in the nick of time. She tries to call for help, but the phone is already dead and there's an open window, meaning Michael could be anywhere. So she grabs a knitting needle for protection, and then Michael attacks her from behind the couch, completely whiffs, and she's able to, like, baby, basically quick flick and stab him right in the side of the neck yeah. with that sew, or uh, not sewing, knitting needle. And he pulls the needle out and drops to the ground prone, so it looks like he's dead. Lori believes he's dead, immediately drops the knife and runs upstairs to the kids. Just as she thinks she's safe and that she's killed him, which I mean, like that could definitely be a killing blow to like get stabbed in the neck. But, you know, it's Michael Myers. So, of course, it wasn't. Michael ascends the staircase, causing the kids to flee in one direction while Lori fakes going out the window and hides in the closet. Michael is not fooled and starts breaking down the closet door. Thinking quickly, Lori breaks a coat hanger and jabs him in the eye, causing him to lose the knife. Susan Kuhn would be probably pretty proud. She then stabs him in the torso with the knife, and he falls prone once more. Again, thinking she he's dead, Lori tells the kids to run, get to a phone, call for help. Then she drops the knife again. Not cool, Lori. Susan would be very disappointed with that. You know, the the closet door thing just ha- like, I could rip that closet door off, and I don't have Michael Myers' strength. I don't, I just, the closet door scene just doesn't get me. Like, like he could have just ripped it off. Like, I don't know if he was just playing around, but he could have just, like... I don't know. Yeah, um, it's more cinematic the way he did it, though, and it's more terrifying, which, you know, like, he's all about that terrifying factor. He he likes to play with his food. Yeah, not not the best security, uh, for sure. Like I said, she drops the knife for a second time, which apparently during, like, their test screenings or uh, whatever, like, one guy just, like, after she dropped it for the second time, was like, You deserve to die! <laughs> that's what a dick <laughs> um so she sits down in tears and exhaustion the kids run screaming down the street which alerts Loomis. michael slowly rises behind her again and this time just gives up on the knife and starts to strangle her Lori fights back and pulls off his mask revealing the face of the killer and he's just some guy <laughs> like that that's one of the like best reveals about this is like they pull off the mask you're you're expecting like scars or like deformations or whatever but instead it's just it's just a guy like his eyes a little weird because he just got stabbed with a coat hanger but like other than that he's just a dude yeah. uh, and the uh maskless he's played by uh tony moran michael tosses her to the side and replaces the mask upon a f- uh, upon his face 
Just as he's prepared to finish Laurie off, Loomis appears and unloads the full cylinder of his revolver into Michael, knocking him back far enough that he falls off the balcony to what appears to be his final death. Loomis comforts Laurie for a moment before looking at Michael again to discover he has disappeared once more. He looks out into the darkness, not surprised, but alert and disheartened. Our final shot is a montage of various locations, as Michael's heavy breathing warns the viewer that not only is he very much not dead, but he could also be anywhere, perhaps everywhere. Cue the theme. Dun 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 Yep. Roll credits, good movie. Yeah, it was a great, it's a great movie. Yeah, uh, so next came the real challenge, which was getting an audience. Uh, Hollywood simply did not want horror movies, for some fucking reason. Uh, Irwin invited them, like, distributors to the screening. None of them showed up. But some college students did, which is where that story came from. So with no studio backing, Irwin distributed the film himself with the knowledge and training he had from years as a booker. He took the film to a relatively small town, so if it bombed, he could bury the news and try again somewhere else. So five days before Halloween 1978 at an AMC in Kansas City, Missouri, Halloween debuted. By the end of the first day, they had a small number of tickets sold. It wasn't great, but it was respectable. But the next day, it had doubled. And the next day, it had doubled again. So by Halloween, word of mouth had swelled to a packed house. Irwin knew he had a hit, so he took the movie to Chicago, where it again saw crowds building day by day. It beat out every other movie from every studio for two months after being after reviews from Roger Ebert and The Village Voice. So the next year, it was put back into theaters for the holiday and was a hit again. So the next year, they did it again in 1980. Then in 1981, Halloween 2 came out. The first of numerous sequels. Halloween, the first Halloween ended up grossing $70 million dollars. 47 million domestically and 23 million overseas. So that's over 233 times its initial $300,000 budget. They they made some money. Yeah. That's for sure. So so part of the success might have been due to uh the real world serial killers that were plastered all over the news. Like January of that year, January 15th of that year Bundy attacked the Chi Omega sorority in Tallahassee, Florida. He was then caught and arrested in February of 1978. Roman Polanski skipped bail and fled to Europe after being charged and in, for engaging with sex with a 13-year-old girl. The Unabomber attacked the, for the first time, bombing Northwestern University May 25th. Carlton Gary, George's stalking strangler, was arrested that year. The Hillside Stranglers killed their 10th and final fi- victim as a duo. Jeffrey Dahmer, Andre Chikatilo, Dennis Nielsen, the Connecticut River Valley Killer, the Orange County Killer, and Philip Carl Jablonski all killed their first victims, while even more were in the midst of their career, career sounds like the wrong term, but like their time as serial killers, as active serial killers, and John Wayne Gacy was arrested in December, December 22nd of 1978. So with all this going on, you'd think that people would be burned out on the subject, but I think... I think there's something to the catharsis of seeing a fictional version with a somewhat satisfying conclusion compared to the complicated and muddy real-life counterparts. Like, after after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan and Iraq, like, we started getting more Afghanistan or, like, Middle Eastern-based war movies like Jarhead and uh, Zero Dark Thirty and, you know, 
like we started getting a lot more of that. So I think there's something about like seeing a fictionalized version where like, you know, you have someone specific you can root for that drives people, even though it's like in the real world, it's very muddy, very complicated, very awful. Yeah, we're all but we're just, all rooting for Michael Myers. Yeah, but like just that was there were so many like very prominent serial killers active during that time. I guess the movie just had like a perfect catalyst to one succeed and two transcend. I think so. Uh, so let's move on to the uh, legacy of the film. As a franchise, it's had numerous sequels. I think twelve, as well as two. Well, a remake and a sequel to the remake. Did you watch the Rob Zombie version? I've seen them. I've seen it, but I don't remember it at all. I uh, I, I watched it this week just because I'd never seen it. Because I'm not typically a big fan of Rob Zombie movies. I I don't like a lot of the things they did in that movie. But um, but I think we're gonna have to discuss the reboot on its own some other time. The uh, the Myers house had has been completely renovated and fully lifted and moved to a different to the different side of town after being saved from demolition by city council member David Margrave and is now used as a chiropractor's office and is protected as a culturally significant site. Uh, they should make it a, a fan house of this every year. You'd think so, but I guess they would rather have it be a chiropractor's. Uh, a fan of the film also built an exact replica of the house in New- North Carolina, and it was used for the short film Judith, The Night She Stayed Home, a prequel which offered insight into Judith Myers, The Night She Was mur- Murdered by Michael. Yeah. I haven't watched it, so I don't know if it's any it good. It doesn't um, sound like it would be very good. <laughs> it, yeah. It, I, don't, like, I don't know what they would do with it. It's not like... I don't know. It just doesn't sound very compelling. But in any case... Much of Halloween's success is the dedication and ambition of the cast and crew uh, to take a relatively simple story and execute it very well. And also just, you know, luck and coincidence and uh, connections. Like, Like I said, like all those people working together, they all knew each other quite well and were able to bring forth something that has endured for 45 years at this point. Like, it, this movie's had sequels earlier this year yeah uh i i haven't watched them um but but i mean like this this franchise keeps going and it obviously inspired a lot of you know slashers in the 80s like um friday the 13th i think it had something to do with uh or i i think it at least somewhat inspired nightmare on elm street um definitely inspired leprechaun did it? Oh, I have no idea. I just wanted to bring up that movie and reference it. If you've never seen Leprechaun <laughs> or any of the iterations, go watch it. For the next, like, almost 20 years after this movie came out, like, this movie set the precedent for, like, I was saying earlier, like, the virgin, um, or, like, at least the pure uh, final girl, the, you know, the uh, anyone who does drugs or has sex dies. Uh, usually after getting naked. Yeah, that, that's um, how it should happen. The good people should live and the bad people should die. I don't have any problem with it. Having sex and doing drugs isn't bad people. Bad people. Nope. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but but that was the status quo for the next couple of decades. And it wasn't until movies like Scream 
And then, like, a decade later, uh, Cabin in the Woods and, like, a few others really started playing against that trope that uh, we've started to see some nuance when it comes to slashers. Like, they were so ingrained that, like, Scream came out and totally, like, made a pretty competent horror movie while also completely mocking, like, these kind of tropes that had been yeah. there for decades at that point. Uh, yeah, Scream's great. And, like, Scream is top tier. First one is. Yeah. Uh, the rest of them are okay. I know what you did last summer kind of uh, takes away that yeah. trope as well because they're all technically in on it. Yeah, thank you. I for uh, I, I knew I was missing one. Yeah, that was the other one I was thinking First of. Yeah, movie um, is okay. Please don't go watch any the sequel at all. Yeah, I, I haven't heard. Uh, I think I've seen the second one, but I don't remember anything about it being good. Atrocious. Absolutely yeah. atrocious. But I think that's uh, pretty much all I have. Like, this movie uh, has earned its legacy. That's, that, there's what a, about there's a reason why everybody references Halloween. And even if you don't, like, re- fully remember the first movie, it, there's something about it that's in your heart that's like, resonates with you that you'll remember, even if you watched it, any other I- iteration of it. Just because it's that iconic of something and everybody's talked about it. Yeah, I wonder if uh, anyone's put forth the theory that Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees are Saiyans. Nah, they're not that strong. Goku would totally dominate. Yeah, but every time they die, they get stronger. That that is true, but we don't get. We're not going to give them Saiyans. That is like, come on. That's like saying, <laughs> no, that that's too cool. That's too cool. All right, uh, so do you have any other final thoughts? No, that's everything I got. All right, well, um, yeah, I can't really think of anything else uh, without, you know, going into the sequels or... uh, Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I think we're going to call it there. So uh, that is the end of our spooky October season, Um, although it's not the end of us talking about... uh, whole lot of grim dark stuff sometimes so uh next episode is going to be a sweet treat with some pretty awful baggage to it sounds good i'll bring a snack (laughs) well guys thanks for listening you can find us on twitter at what underscore we underscore consume and on instagram at what we consume podcast and i am at king hagathor on twitter other than that bye bye